Welcome to Pixel Tunes Radio, a podcast where we have fun talking about video games and video game music. I'm Mike. And I'm Iku Mizutani, and we're here to interview Ed about his amazing video game compositions. You don't sound like Iku Mizutani. I got that backwards. You did. I'm actually Mike, here to interview Ed. Oh, okay. With Iku Mizutani as my co-host. Oh, No, okay. wait a second. No, That's not right this either. this is all wrong. Oh, why don't you explain it, and then we'll, we'll go all on right. from there. I am Mike, and this is Ed, and we are interviewing Iku Mizutani. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, there's a little bit of a language barrier. We're going to get to that in just a second. But first, we've got a ton of stuff to talk about initially. Why don't we jump right into our Pixel Chat segment? Yeah, we had a lot of questions today from a lot of our dear fans, maybe a couple new people mixed in here. So let's kick it off with Nathan, AKA Utopia Nemo. He's been very active in the video game music podcast community recently. He did a guest star on Pixelated Audio. He's a constant contributor for the VGM Jukebox, and he submitted some questions to us too. So here's his Pixel Chat question. If you guys were spoons, which one would stack on top in the silverware drawer? <laughs> what? I'm not sure where to go with this one. All right, well, first off... You're going to say the top, and I'm going to say the top. No. You want to be a bottom? I'm not getting on top of no spoons. <laughs> I'm getting on the forks, man. Yeah? Yeah, man. Why? Because I'm a spoon. If I'm a spoon, I don't want to be on top of another spoon. I want to be on a fork. So you... Just randomly jumble your silverware in the silverware drawer in the kitchen? Hey, fork you, man. Don't make me take my knife out. I don't know. <laughs> um, I used up all the good silverware puns. Yeah, no. I don't know how to answer this question, and it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I just told you. I'm not... Okay, so Mike would be sitting on top of the forks, and, and I would the be fork king... would be getting... Forky. And I, I am I would be king of the spoons. I would be on top of the spoons. I would be spooning with the fork. Yeah, that was Boom. kinda like the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Alright then. <laughs> Moving right along. Hope you guys got informed. I don't know. Yes. So Cameron Childs, our good buddy, writes, Alright, hot shots, you have a cool million to give any band or artist living or dead to cover your VGM of choice. What do you even do? That's a good question. Yeah. What's your pick? I would pay Nine Inch Nails to cover Bionic Commando. I mean, duh. Okay, okay. Hmm. I'm going to say David Bowie. It'd take a little more than a million dollars to get him back. Well, it says living or dead. Fair enough. I would choose David Bowie, and I would have him do, I don't know, Mario. I think that'd be cool. Or Zelda. I don't know. Okay. Something okay. something like pretty generic, but like done David Bowie style. I think it'd be really cool. Yeah. You could put like lyrics to like Zelda music. Yeah, I guess the thing with, with well, with both Nine Inch Nails and David Bowie is that all of their albums, like they all sound completely different. Completely from each different, other. right. So yeah. you'd be looking for more like the talent behind it than it would be for necessarily like a sound, you know? Mario in space. <laughs> I'm David Bowie. Well, Mario Galaxy. He could redo the Mario yes. Galaxy. Ground control to Major Mario. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving right along. Chris Myers writes, Hello, Ed Boy and Mike Boy. <laughs> All right, Chris Boy. <laughs> what, in your opinion, is the best movie slash TV licensed game in terms of gameplay and soundtrack? Ooh, We were talking about this a little bit two nights ago. Yeah, you know, that's really tough because there's so many actually really good movie and TV licensed games, and this podcast is actually going to show a lot of that. I'm going to probably say, though, 
Batman for the NES. I think the graphics are great. I think the gameplay is great. And that music soundtrack by Naoki Kodaka is just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Good choice. Good choice. What about um, you? The best. Well, I was talking about, I think, a couple nights ago. I've, I've, I've got a couple choices. Um, I guess the first one that popped into my head was Turtles in Time on the SNES okay. or the arcade. All the Turtles music. Fantastic yeah, games. I also, I'm thinking back to that movie episode that we did and uh, Super Back to the Future that only came out on the Super Famicom. Right. Really fun, really playable game. Very true to the movie, which is weird for like a side-scrolling platformer style game. Yeah. And uh, amazing music by Hitoshi Sakimoto, so you can't really go wrong with that one yeah. either. Good question. All right, so next question is from our dear friend Jeff Leppard. Mike and Ed, name your top three favorite romantic slash sexy tune tracks, and for God's sake, think of the children and keep it PG, you heathens. <laughs> PG. PG. We're at least PG-13 on this show. Yeah, come on now. But we have to abide by his wishes. Will you go first? Oh, you're making me go first. Top three. I don't know if I can think of three at once. Uh, there is a scene in Final Fight Streetwise in which you play through an adult movie theater. Okay. And the music in the background is very bowchick wow. Okay. I'll keep it PG as possible. There are some vocal samples in there which are of questionable um, source, I mm-hmm. guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Women sounding like they're having a very nice time. Okay. And so that's the first one that came to mind for me. What about you for your first pick? I'm going to say something from Side Pocket. Any of the Okay, tracks, very jazzy, right? very fun. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. There's, oh yeah, Super Adventure Island, that first track where Master Higgins and his girlfriend are hanging out under the moon, and there's that like little uh, like Hawaiian Lua style song that plays. That's a, that's a pretty romantic tune. Okay, okay. Alright. There is a track from Tobol 2, which is fantastic, and it's very like laid back and kind of romantic, kind of jazzy. It's really good. I'll have to post it in the Facebook group, because I really can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um, our buddy Brian, actually, not Brian from Pixelated Audio, but my personal friend Brian. Uh, from told episode me, five? Yeah. Brian told me about this track and actually put it on the CD for me, and I was like, wow, this is really good. So yeah, Tobol number two. Uh, as far as the third one, there's the love and marriage theme from Tomodachi Life on the 3DS, which is a very peaceful and kind of romantic tune that sticks out at me. Uh, it's where you go into the game and you can pair up your Miis and uh, see what their life compatibility rating is, if they're either going to be like mortal enemies or star-crossed lovers. So okay. if they're very compatible with each other, it plays this nice little romantic tune that's cool. kind of fun to listen to. All right, what's your third? I'm going to say Final Fantasy VII, and I'm, I'm torn. It's either going to be when you're at the Honeybee Inn mm-hmm. or when you are on a date with whoever you go on a date with, either uh, Tifa, Eris, or Barrett. Cool. Yeah. I don't remember that tune, but I'm sure it's fun. Well, they're two different songs. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. One is like a lot more laid back. It's the one where like... So not the one where uh, Cloud has to dress up as a girl going to the brothel? No, no. It's the one right before that when you go to the Honeybee Inn. It's not the one that's like, dude, 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 yeah. dude. Not that one. <laughs> that'd be really, that'd be really weird to, to get busy too. <laughs> hey, honey, dude, dude. Yeah, yeah. some polka to make out to. Yeah, yeah. Our last question comes from Nico, aka the Wee Guy, and he writes. Is that what's on his tax return? 
Yeah. He just puts Nico, a.k.a. AKA the, the wee guy. guy. Yeah, his middle name is a.k.a. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coming off the heels of the last episode, I was happy to see Apocalypse 2 get featured for it being an unreleased and lengthy track, which had me thinking, what are some of your favorite long-form songs at least eight minutes before it loops or ends, and are you guys ever hesitant to feature lengthy tracks due to the already long nature of the PTR episodes? Thanks, guys. I am not really that big of a fan of, of like, crazy long tracks in video game music. I prefer the song to be really no more than, like, I don't know, six minutes. I don't know. I prefer a long song if it... If it changes enough. Right, like the like some of the Tim Fallen tracks. Jim Power comes to mind. That intro yep, track, yep. Um, really anything from those European composers like Tim Fallen, uh, Alberto Jose Gonzalez. You know those those type of composers. Yeah, I yeah. think do Gonzalez's a, tracks aren't job. usually that long. No, they're but, pretty short. Um, you know, like Just for Kid. Yeah. Jeez, this music can go on for like twelve minutes. Yeah. And as long as it's changing. We've played music from him in the past, and and with kids' music, it tends to kind of start repeating patterns but in different order right you know so it's kind of like once you've listened to the first five or six minutes you've pretty much heard everything the song has to offer right so when i've played his music in the past i've i've faded it out and then we kind of like would talk over the rest of the track right simply because you're not really going to be introduced to anything new Hmm. so i guess that kind of answers your question it's like if if it's a super duper long song it would need to be so amazing that you wouldn't get tired of listening to the whole song. And I think a lot of those Tim Fallon yeah. tracks definitely did. With that Apocalypse 2 track, it, there was a lot of variation, a lot of different melodies. So I didn't get tired of listening to it. If I can listen to it in the car and not be like, oh my God, the song is dragging on, right. then that's my cue that I would put it in. I mean, it's my own personal taste. So. Uh, Dean Evans is another composer. Waterworld composer? Yeah, yeah. Waterworld, Flintstones. He's done a bunch of Super Nintendo stuff, uh, Cool World. And it's all really amazing stuff. I, I would love to do an episode on him, specifically the map theme from Waterworld. Just an episode on the map theme? Just, dude, you can put that track on and just loop it for like hours and just space out to it. It's so cool and trippy and... Yeah, and, uh, agreed. It's, 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 it's kind really, of a romantic tune too. You yeah, can definitely. Yeah, that's 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 a good one for that. So that is another really good track that that I would love to feature in the podcast. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess the final answer is it depends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap it up for our Pixel Chat segment. Now we're moving into a really quick clarification corner. Uh, this is basically a segment where if we screw up or if we don't provide the right information in the previous episode or a previous episode uh we'll clarify it in the following episode so this one comes from somebody on youtube pimpalicious 1987 one of our uh, listeners and viewers and he actually wrote that no more heroes did release in north america on the playstation 3 not just japan in the last episode i said that i thought no more heroes did not release on the ps3 but only only the second one did. right i thought it only listed, uh, released in japan but i think there was a really long i think there was a really long time between the original heroes release and the ps3 release yeah I think by the time it came years. out on ps3 it was like nobody really that big knew. of a deal yeah and, and you I, didn't even have a ps3 so it probably no. just flew under your radar yeah oh it totally did yeah i mean and i played the original so why would i yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah all right so we're gonna go ahead and get into the episode now today we are doing a special on iku mizutani he is quite frankly a legendary composer he is in my opinion my personal favorite 
video game music composer. He is fantastic. So we're going to be covering mostly his NES, Super NES, Game Boy, and Game Boy Color era. Right. And even though we had our free pick, episode 70, in between these two episodes... Episode 69, the Tim Fallon episode, and this particular episode were kind of both conceived at the same time as kind of counterparts to each other. Right. Where if I'm going to do an entire show based on my favorite composer, Mike was going to do the same for his. So this episode is like 99%... Mike. <laughs> it um, is. Whereas, you know, the Tim Fallon episode is 99% me. That's so true. we're kind of like each kind of like riding on each other's composer yeah. train. Yeah. What? <laughs> um, but uh, so we did mention there was a little language barrier. So later on in the show, our pal Brian, my co host from Impulse Project and uh, host of Pixelated Audio, happens to be uh, very fluent in Japanese and was able to translate the Japanese questions that, or the Japanese answers that Iku Mizutani gave us. So he'll kind of be speaking for Iku Mizutani as we go through the show and ask him questions and such. So That's right. uh, if you hear Brian's voice, just pretend it's Mizutani-san. Right. Yes. So Iku Mizutani is 55 years old. He was born in October 11th of 1960. Ooh, less than a month away as of this recording. Yes. So we'll a very a early happy birthday to Mr. <laughs> Mizutani. He was born in Toyonakashi, Osaka, Japan, and he worked for a lot of different video game companies. He started off with Konami, doing a lot of work for the MSX2, uh, the PC-88, and then he moved over shortly after that to the NES and started working on that. And that was kind of his bread and butter. That's where he really came into, in my opinion, came into fruition. His earlier work is also very good, but we're mainly focusing, very similar to the Tim Fallon episode, we're mainly focusing this time on his work that is, I would say, probably some of his best. Your favorite stuff. Yeah, mostly my favorite stuff. And very similar to how you picked all the early Tim Fallon picks, I picked all of the Mizutani picks. Right. So this is mostly NES, SNES, and Game Boy tracks, correct? Yes, that is correct. So with the NES, Mizutani created a sound driver at Natsume, who he later joined up with after he left Konami. And the music was programmed in binary and hexadecimal. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that because we did ask questions. So what we'll do is I will read the questions and then Brian will read the answer. So why don't we go ahead and get into our first track. Now, this is from, I believe, one of the first NES games that uh, Mizutani worked on. And Mizutani does do work alone, but he also does most of his work with other composers. So he actually did the soundtrack to Russian Attack, and this is the NES version of the arcade game. came out in 1985, and the Stage 2 theme is what we're going to be playing and this track is again by Iku Mizutani, Shinya Sakamoto, and Satoe Terashima. Why don't you take a listen? Thank you. 
Welcome back. That was Rush and Attack. That was the NES port of the game. Actually came out in 1987. The original arcade game came out in 1985. And the track itself was composed by Ikumizutani, Shinya Sakamoto, and Satoe Terashima. Just a really solid rock-based militant sounding soundtrack. Yeah. The game itself is pretty simple. Yeah. And so I think the soundtrack really helps you get through the game. I think if you were playing with the sound off the first time you ever played it, you might get not bored, but it would start to feel a little monotonous. But the soundtrack really keeps you driving through this game. And, you know, even though I think Mr. Tani's sound changed later on throughout the years, this soundtrack sounds really Konami. Like, it really reminds me of Contra and a lot of those earlier Konami action games that, even though those composers didn't even work on Contra, I think, you know, maybe they had a similar influence somewhere that that made all those early Konami games sound the same. There is a game that came out right around the time of Russian Attack called Iron Horse, and it's very similar to Russian Attack. I first found out about Russian Attack actually from playing it at Funspot Arcade in Laconia, New Hampshire. Oh, the arcade version. Yeah, I played the arcade version first, then I loved it so much I picked up the NES version. And I really enjoy this type of game because, very similar to Iron Horse, these are basically games that have eh, pretty pretty easygoing levels at first, but they get more in-depth as time goes on, and they get more intense, and there's more enemies. Russian Attack specifically is uh, based on a Cold War setting, so it's very, like, 80s, it's got that Cold War era going on, and essentially you play as a U.S. uh, special ops character who is basically trying to rescue POWs from being killed by Russians. Yeah, and the game itself was titled Green Beret in Europe and Japan. So if you're not from the U.S., you might remember it from, from that name. Musically, I think... It's kind of a, like, I don't want to say generic, but a very traditional style Nintendo tune. You know, you've got yeah. harmonizing square waves, that triangle bass, the noise channel drums. You know, everything is very, there's nothing that really, like, stands out in far, as far as, like, the technical aspect goes. Right. But, again, it's just, it's got that nice driving beat. It's got a melody that doesn't get tiring. It just it just sounds like something that you could listen to in the background while you work like for like eight hours straight and it would just <laughs> you would never be like, Oh, when is this song gonna end? You right. know, it just kind of feels good. It's funny you mentioned that because as I was listening to the track, you were like, Well, that's the loop and I was like Oh, was it? I was like, <laughs> it, I guess it was, yeah. It's just one of those types of songs and all the music is very similar to this where you can throw it on, you can listen to it, and it doesn't it doesn't get tiring. Yeah, they loop so to very speak. naturally too. Right. It's not like you can easily tell. I mean, I, I'm very familiar with the soundtrack, so I knew where the loop was. But yeah. uh, you know, if you're casually listening to it and maybe weren't, you know, didn't have every note memorized, <laughs> you know, you would not necessarily even know. It might loop three or four times before you're like, "Hey, I think I've heard this part before." Yeah, this game's been ported all over the place too. It's gone to Game Boy Advance, Nintendo DS, Xbox 360. It came out on the Live Arcade. I actually played that version. Yeah, well, too. it also had a ton of. Uh, Big computer ports that Spectrum, yes. Commodore 64, the Amstrad, the Atari 8 bit, MSX. So most of those had different soundtracks that were composed by European composers or they were kind of loosely based on the original arcade soundtrack. Yep. There was also a sequel that came out fairly recently 
in 2011 for the Xbox Live Arcade and PlayStation 3 via the PlayStation Network called Russian Attack X Patriot. And it's kind of inspired by the original game in the sense that it's, you know, 2D perspective, or actually in this one it's 2.5D, and, you know, it scrolls as you go through. It's kind of a little bit more like stealthy. You've got some more like stealth envir environment and at atmosphere, so kind of like a little bit Metal Gear. It's kind of like Metal Gear combined. They could have come Russian up with a better subtitle for the sequel, I think. Expatriate? Like Russian Attack 2, Rush Harder, or... <laughs> that would have fit with the 80s motif, I, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, but... Russian Attack 2, even attackier, or yes. something like that. So, I don't know, with this track, you can kind of get a sense as to where... Mizutani kind of stands regarding his music. It's very driven and it's very action based. So a track so You're not game, gonna see a lot of sweeping orchestral melodies coming right. out of Mizutani's fingers. Yeah, a game like this really fits with his style of music. And you're gonna see as we go through this podcast all these tracks, they're very action based. It's that quintessential like Japanese action music. Absolutely. Right. All right, so what do you say we get into our next track? Let's do it. So right. the next track is from another classic NES game. This is Shadow of the Ninja. This was released in 1990 in Japan and America and 1991 in Europe. And the soundtrack was composed by Ikumizutani and Koichi Yamanishi. And this is Stage 5. Give it a listen. That was Shadow of the Ninja for the NES, came out in 1990. The stage was Stage 5, and that track was by Iku Mizutani and Koishi Yamanishi. Now, before we get started talking about the game, we did want to go ahead and begin our question and answer. And to help us with that is our good friend Brian from Pixelated Audio. Brian, say hello. How's it going, guys? Thanks for uh, you know having me on to help you out with this. We're super excited and we're really thankful for you helping us out. There is obviously a bit of a language barrier between Mizutani and ourselves. <laughs> I thought you were going to so... say between me and you guys, you know, being out in the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we speak Connecticut. We don't speak surfer. <laughs> <laughs> we asked a bunch of questions to Mizutani and Brian was able to translate most of those or all of those questions. So we're going to go ahead and get started. So we asked Mizutani, you started out proving your technical skill with Konami, working on titles such as Metal Gear for the MSX and Russian Attack. How did you get started in the industry? All right, when I decided I wanted to work at Konami, 
I spent every day of my entire summer and winter breaks doing part-time composing gigs. And the senior staff would give me like a theme or a tune to work on, so I'd continue kind of doing that in my free time. The first thing I did when I got to Konami was study programming sound drivers. And I learned that within one frame per second, which is equal to one sixtieth of a second, a tone can be played, and that's also how to use PSG. The very first team I was assigned to was the NES sound team. So starting there, so say for example, when you listen to like something like the Super Mario Brothers and you're not moving and you just hear the music playing, you hear the entire song used, all channels used, and uh, just kind of this enjoyable melody. But when you jump or hit a brick or any other kind of sound effect is played, the system has to determine and prioritize what effects needs to be played in place of another channel. So my first task there was to create a specific driver for this dummy port. And uh, I'm going to cut in as myself for a second here. Um, Mizutani explains dummy port um, when he's talking about his original first job in creating the sound driver. There's no direct translation for it, but I'm assuming what he is directly referring to is the swapping channels in and out for sound effects. Anyways, the driver ended up being used for the disc system and the first game to use it was Akumajo Dracula. After that I was tasked to work on some NES playback routines and timing algorithms along with some sampling. There is a voice in Gambare Goemon where it says Goyouda and I remember that taking a lot of time for you know, in hindsight, for what was such a short sample. After getting my bearings, I moved over to the composition side of the NES sound team where I was in charge of Hino Tori Ho Ohen, and I did most of the music and all of the sound effects. And I also did Nazo no Kabe Block Kuzushi, and in the US, this is called Crackout. I also did the sound effects and part of the music for that. But really, uh, if the NES team needed any help on any other projects, I contribute bits and pieces here and there as well. Konami was producing a ton of different titles, so collectively, we'd shuffle around whenever we could help. Then from the NES team, I was transferred over to the MSX team, which was later called, uh, or later titled, the PC Sound Team, where I first was in charge of Metal Gear. Now. Although I contributed to a portion of the music, my main task was really to quote unquote enhance the sound in the game. So I created cleaner tones and um, also was in charge of the sound effects. So after that I worked on the sound driver for the PC88SR, which is the Z80OPNA, as well as the BGM editor, which um, was kind of like their sequencing editor in a sense, and hmm. sound effects production editor. And during this time, I worked on an unreleased game called Guzeju, doing both the music and the sound effects. And then for Snatcher, doing part of the music and the sound effects in their entirety. I was also in charge of a bunch of other titles on the MSX, like Parodius, Gradius 2, and so on. They kind of had me all over the place, and it was becoming kind of like this huge workload. And it was kind of stressing me out a little bit, but I really enjoyed what I was doing. I even did some uh, arcade stuff as well, like Shaolin's Road, and a hot rock of love. And actually, cutting <laughs> in here, this is Brian's. I don't. I don't know the the, the English name for it's Koino Hotoroku, is the is the Japanese name. So I'm not sure okay. what that translates to, but uh, hot <laughs> rock of love, something like that. I'll take. Yeah, it. <laughs> and uh, that's a. You'll take the hot rock of love. <laughs> yeah. And then he goes on to say here, and that's about the time I ended up leaving Konami to join Natsume. Interesting. 
that's like a whole interview's worth of information in one answer. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. That's really cool. I, I didn't know that he had done work on the sound driver for Akumajo Dracula. That's yeah. really cool. That's really cool. I also kind of appreciate the fact, and I always kind of wondered if it was part of just the way the hardware was created or the or the uh, like kind of like the built-in sound banks with the NES that would cut a certain channel out whenever a sound effect were played or whether that needed to be like physically programmed mm. by somebody. So that's that's cool information too from a technical yeah. standpoint. And the fact that for Konami a lot of that work was done by Mizutani where he decided what channel would be cut out whenever a um, so for instance I guess if a, if a sound effect uses used one of the square channels which of those squares would need to be cut out in order to make that sound effect come to life so he would kind of I guess figure out which one was the lead melody which might be a harmonizing melody right. and prioritize which one of those channels would take the place of those sound effects so that's hmm. really cool that's very interesting and also it's worth noting that he mentions that he kind of jumped ship from different projects and that everyone was kind of working on a bunch of different things. Yeah. So he had, you know, kind of his work in all different types of places. And that's pretty interesting because when you think about who composed these tracks and who composed all the music for these games, there could have been like, you know, four, five, six composers on some of these games, even though maybe only two or three are credited. Yeah. It's so tough with the Japanese soundtracks in the Japanese industry because there really wasn't a lot of like noting going on as far as like who specifically documentation it was the wild west out there man yeah, yeah. <laughs> it almost sounds like they were just kind of, you know, okay, we need two more pieces of music for this game. Write those. And then go over here and do two more pieces of music for this game. And it's like, I don't even know if these guys knew exactly which stages their music would end up being played in. Right. So it's like, that's why it's so difficult for us to delve back and say, okay, these particular tracks were written by these particular composers. And right. instead, we just have a list of 12 tracks with three composers. Yeah. And even the composers probably don't remember which of the music is theirs. I think it's also worth noting that with Capcom and Konami, they are very different companies, and Capcom actually did a really good job of figuring out who did what yeah, yeah. back in the day. Well, there was a fire in the Konami building, exactly. too, and I think a lot of that pertinent information was lost. Well, there was a earthquake. Yeah, oh, that's right. And, it, and then that caused a fire in the building. Uh, something like that. Yeah. And so there's, like, in the basement, they lost, like, tons and tons and tons records of and artwork records, and... artwork, like, all the Castlevania early artwork is just gone. Yeah. So it's unfortunate that we don't have those records to look back on to say, hey, did Mizutani do this? Did he do that? It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And sad. Yeah. Very sad. Yeah. So about this particular game, so this is right in the early days of Mizutani joining Natsume and Shadow of the Ninja. We've talked about it a little bit before, but... Actually, yeah, we've played two tracks for Shadow of the Ninja in the yes, past. Yeah, it's a fantastic soundtrack. I mean, this track in particular, Stage 5, just starts off with these really awesome chuggy guitars that come in just to introduce the track, and then it kind of floats into this overwhelming like almost like a fearful kind of track. Yeah, well those harmonies at the beginning are awesome. It yeah. almost sounds like chromatics, which you don't normally get in like right. a PSG NES kind of game. Yeah. That triangle actually comes up above the two square channels and then swoops down and becomes the bass again. It's yeah. it's a really cool technique that you yeah. don't hear very often. This track in particular just stands out. It's a fantastic song on an already just 
overwhelmingly fantastic soundtrack. For the game, we're not really going to get too much into it. You can play as Hayate, the uh, bluish-purplish ninja, or you can play as the Kunoichi uh, Kaede in uh, like an orangish red. So that's pretty much it. It's very standard like action Japanese game. Ninja Gaiden ninja style. Gaiden style. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, Shadow and Ninja, great game. It's fantastic. It's known in Japan as Yami no Shigotonen Kage. Yes. Or Blue Shadow in Europe. Yeah, and if you want to hear more information about it, go back and listen to our Ninja episode. Uh, I think that was the first time we played a Shadow of the Ninja track, and we talked about the game kind of in depth on that one. Yes, and, then and we played, um, the uh, ending, ending themes track yeah. or the ending, the ending themes episode with Cam Worma. We uh, played the ending theme from the game and talked about it a little bit more there yes. as well. So good cross references, so you guys can go back and listen to more about this awesome game. All right, so let's move on to our next track. This one is a Game Boy title called Tailgater, and this one came out on the Game Boy in 1991. This is the boss theme, and this is the uh, first soundtrack we're playing from where Iga Mizutani did 100% of the soundtrack. Let's take a listen. Welcome back. That was Tailgater for the Game Boy, released in 1991. That was the boss theme from Iku Mizutani, the man of the day. Yes, that is correct. This game is known as Shippo Debun in Japan, and this was a Game Boy exclusive. It's also known as either Crocodile or just Tailgater. I think in the U.S. is the only place it's known as Tailgater. Basically, you play as an alligator named Charlie. And you use your tail to whack all different types of enemies. Keeping it real basic, the story is that a this dragon guy who's like an overlord of the dragon clan, I guess. <laughs> he's known as Basso Gilla. And he shows up at this castle. And his army is there. And he's basically trying to destroy this place called Moberry, which is like this like super peaceful, really easygoing land. I guess it's very similar to like Sonic. It's very similar to 99% of the action, (laughs) you know, game plots, uh, especially for Game Boy. You know, they keep it very simple. Yeah. So the elders put Charlie in charge of defending. Charlie in charge of my game. And all right. Oh, boo. Yeah. All right, so it's a pretty simple game. It's more like arcade uh, There's five different locations or areas, I guess you could say, that Tailgater is divided into. There's air, where you're like in the sky. There's uh, land, where you're just like on the earth. Uh, there's cave, where you're like going in caves. And then underwater. And uh, the fourth and fifth areas are like castle-esque. So... It's pretty cool. I mean, you get to power up your attack, so as you defeat more bad guys just by, you know, whipping them with your tail, you kill them, and then you get, like, different power-ups, 
and those power-ups make your uh, tail power, your attack power stronger until the point where it's kind of like Zelda where you have like this beam, this like tail beam that shoots out that is kind of like a projectile. So it's a fun game. It's a, it's pretty rare. It's harder to find nowadays, but uh, it's a really cool game. It's still up by Natsume. Cool. And as far as the track goes, it's just like a fun jazz track. Jazz, yeah, blues. It, more like swing. Yeah, it, it kind yeah. of reminded me of the player select track from Super Mario Brothers 2, kind of like a piano ragtime kind of right. deal. Yeah. Uh, not what you'd normally hear from, you know, when you think of Mizutani, you think more of like... Japanese action music. Uh, Japanese action music, <laughs> uh, more of a rock feel, progressive feel. Right. This is just very Old West saloon. Like, it's got a lot of those different kind of elements where you you kind of feel like it's a guy on a stand-up piano. Right. Just kind of jamming along with, like, a monocle and a top hat or something. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's very um, early Mario Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think maybe that's the feel he was going for because the game so closely emulates that that kind of Nintendo Mario Brothers feel. So, yeah. you know, the songs and, and the whole soundtrack in general kind of very much emulates that that feel of Mario Brothers 2 mm-hmm. or uh, Mario Land or Mario Land 2. Yeah, similar to Mario, you can also get uh, points. There's like a point system as well. So it's got that like in-between nature of old school arcade like go for the most points versus, you know, like the more Mario Brothers types game, type of games where it's like, you know, hey, I have a goal, uh, I have to save the kingdoms. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there's all different kind of things you could try. You can bust open these treasure chests and get these points and whatnot. So, yeah, the game's fun. I definitely recommend checking it out if you're looking for just a simple arcade you know, type of game. We asked Mizutani, uh, we said, you've also held various different production roles regarding music in video games. How does this process compare for you to composing tracks? So the thing I learned at Konami, or the thing I learned from Konami, which became my rule to live by, was one, create something that's memorable, easy to hum along with, and you know, kind of easy to kind of pick up for anybody. And then two, something that doesn't get old or monotonous. There's really a lot of other things to consider that are still quite important, but you can really overlook everything else if you kind of stick to those two basic principles. It doesn't really answer the question directly, but that's my take on it. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I mean, that's kind of something that we even talked about at the beginning of the show, was that these songs, even though they repeat a lot, they don't get old. They're very hummable, um, especially like the uh, that Shadow of the Ninja track. It's very easy to whistle yeah. along with. Yeah, all his melodies are just fantastic. That's actually what kind of drew me to him as a composer. He writes the kind of music that I really enjoy, like really great harmonies and melodies, just fantastic stuff. I really dig his stuff. No. <laughs> oh, no. You know, we're doing a full episode on him, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so we also asked him, what is your favorite soundtrack that you've worked on? So even though I've done quite a few game compositions, when somebody asked me um, that specific, you know, what's your favorite soundtrack that you've done, I'm always at a bit of a loss for words because it's, you know, I, I guess it kind of changes in the moment. But um, I guess I really enjoyed Hino Tori Ho Oheng probably that Shadow the Ninja and Shatterhand and now that I think about it probably King of Fighters 13 that was a lot of fun to do and also the Metabot series comes to mind oh the Metabot series that's really good music I didn't even know he did Metabot yeah Kinuyo Yamashita worked on a lot of that soundtrack right too oh okay huh that is interesting now that first game that you mentioned what what was that game that one I've never heard of is that the unreleased one <laughs> uh you know honestly I don't know much about that game I have no idea, but I looked it up and there was no 
English or American or European release. So I just went huh. with the Japanese name. Cool. Ah, we'll have okay. to check that one out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you know, a lot of these games, if we learn more stuff during this show that we didn't know before the show started, you know, we'll share some videos of these games soundtrack um, in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Pixeltunes Radio. And I probably Sorry. should have kind of prefaced the, the, the interview answers uh, beforehand, but you know, a lot of the uh, translations that I did, I tried to find the, you know, the American or European release and, and translate the name, but there's some situations where uh, there isn't, so I just left it in the Japanese. I hope that's all right. Yeah, that's totally that understandable. Okay. Yeah. That, that would be the easiest way to look them up on the web anyway. Yeah. All right, so why don't we go ahead and move on to our next game? Sure. This next one is called Don Dogodon 2. This came out on the Famicom in 1992. This is part two of World 1, my favorite, The Ice Cave. <laughs> and this, again, was written entirely by Iku Mizutani. another day in the Mushroom Kingdom as Mario and Luigi are about to be visited by a very special guest. Luigi, how many times I gotta tell you the princess doesn't have orthopedic underwear? But Mario, Daisy told me to... Oh, we better get that. It's probably that pizza we ordered. Ninja Pizza is always late. How does a castle have a doorbell anyways? Luigi, how many times I gotta tell you about the doorbell? Well, you certainly ain't the pizza man. Cheerio, my fellow, uh, Paisanos. Uh, it's me, your long-lost cousin, Dwarfio. Dwarfio, nice of you to drop by. Come on in. Have a seat. We have a cousin, Dwarfio? Must be on Mama Mario's side of the family. <laughs> so, uh, so, so what brings you to the Mushroom Kingdom? Oh, well, uh, thank you for asking. Y you see, I was doing carpenter things at the Kingdom of the, uh... Kingdom. The Kingdom of Kingdom? The Kingdom Kingdom? Uh, yeah, y you know, they, they kept it simple. A anywho, the, the princess was going to marry the prince when an evil crow showed up and turned the prince into a frog. And now, they need your help to turn the prince back into a human. Boy, that's a pretty thin story. But it seems all too familiar, right, Luigi? That's right, Mario. I think we can help you out. You know, uh, y you don't really look like anyone from the family. Oh, uh, yes, well, I'm, uh, from upstate New York. 
That explains the British accent. Luigi, how many times I gotta tell you? Just because they're from Lake George doesn't mean they're British. Sorry, Mario. Anyways, if you were to join our group, what would you call us? The Super Dawn Doko Dawn Brothers? The who am a what? Say, what was your last name again? Uh, Dwarfio? Get out of here! Hey, you're not one of us. This is crazy. I don't even know what you're talking about. Come on. Uh, What? What did I say? Everybody knows that the Mario family's last name is Mario. You're a lying weasel. But my people, they need our help. Your help? We got enough royalty to save here. Here. We'll give you a hammer. It's all we got. Good luck to you. Now, where's that pizza? Right then, off I go. Cheers to you. Uh, city people, boy. Just come to people for help and they just turn me away. I, I, is it the accent? I don't know. I just, I really did grow up in New York. I don't know what's going on. And we're back. That was Don, Doko Don 2, released on the Famicom in 1992. That was World One, Part Two, The Ice Cave from Iku Mizuchani. Your favorite, Ice Levels. Ice Levels, but this track was awesome. Really good stuff. I, you know, I was actually reminded of Alberto Gonzalez. It has that kind of a bouncy cadence yeah. to it. But then it's also got these kind of parts that sound almost like Native American or something. Kind of reminded me of the first Ninja Turtles yeah. game. Okay. So it's kind of like a mishmash of almost like a European or like a Western composer melody, but with more of a Japanese instrumentation. It was, yeah. it was kind of a cool combination of the two. Yeah, musically it, it sounds very similar to some of the stuff that he was doing with Konami. Yes, so it's kind of like that bridge in between Konami and Natsume, so I, I dug it. I really had fun with this game, actually. This is, uh, it's funny enough, this is uh, often called, in pirated versions of the game, it's been called Mario 8 or Super Brothers 8. Yeah, I can totally <laughs> see that. So yeah, Don Doko Don 2 as a sequel, and it's a 2D platforming game, you know, side-scrolling, very similar to Mario. It's pretty standard. Basically, the way the game goes is you're playing as this bearded dwarf who gets this hammer, and he... Is there such a thing as a non-bearded dwarf? It almost seems like a redundant no, statement. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> so he gets tasked with saving the prince. Instead of a princess, he's actually saving a prince. Wow. Yeah. So he is saving a prince who gets turned, yeah, he gets turned into a frog uh, by this evil crow. And he was about to go marry the princess of, I guess, another land. Oh, so yeah. it's still heteronormative. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So well, the prince, the, is, the prince okay. is gonna marry So he's not rescuing princess. his love, the prince. He's just rescuing the prince so he can get married. Well, no. So the, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, this is really confusing. So basically there's a prince that gets turned into a frog. Right, and he's right. going to get married to he the princess. He was going to get married to the princess, but right. the princess is like, ew, you're a frog. Like, yeah. no way, Jose. So so the, so the dwarf the is going to rescue... The Jose in this situation. <laughs> princess Jose? Prince, no, Prince Jose. So the prince... So the dwarf is going to rescue the prince right. so that the prince can marry the princess. No, the bearded dwarf is going to rescue the prince. Right, that's what right. I said. Oh, okay, all right. Dwarf is going to marry the prince so the prince can marry the princess. No, he's not going to marry anybody. The prince isn't going to marry the princess? No, all right, thought, hold on. Why did he get turned into a frog? All right, you're overcomplicating things. There's a bearded dwarf, all right? Yes. He is rescuing a prince. A prince. Who's been turned 
into a frog, a frog. by a crow. <laughs> okay. The prince was going to marry the princess. That's what I said. No, you were saying the prince is a a uh, dwarf who's going to marry. No, no, I said the dwarf is going to rescue the prince right. so that he can marry the princess. Yes, so that okay. the prince can. I said okay. like eight times. You were saying he. I don't know. I was, being, I was not being descriptive enough with my pronouns. You were saying. not. How okay. dare you? Anyway. I was implying, but you were not <laughs> receiving. All right. So, yeah, it's pretty similar to the original Don Doko Don as far as the game itself goes. It, it's actually kind of like Mario meets, like, Hammer and Harry. Yeah, if you've ever I saw a that. lot of Mario 2 influence. Yes. There were these uh, areas where there were waterfalls with uh, logs with falling logs down. Falling. Come on, it was like literally yeah. ripped directly out of Mario 2. Yeah. So yeah. they were not really trying to hide their influence at all right. in this game. Yeah. So the yeah the track is just fun, happy, bouncy song, and the game is really fun. So I do suggest that you guys check out the game because it's it's pretty cool. Totally worth it. Yeah. So we asked Mizutani, we said many of your fans are familiar with your work on Shadow of the Ninja and Shatterhand. How did you work with other composers who also worked on these soundtracks? Meaning, did you split up the tracks evenly or did you pass the tracks back, back and forth composing together? And he kind of explained that a little bit when it comes to Konami, but we asked him more specifically about Natsume. Well. I was the lead on the sound team, so really I just told others what I needed and they would put something together and submit it to me. Ah. There's also the case where I'd end up you know, asking them to fix sections of a track that, that I did or make arrangements to existing songs, and then we'd kind of go back and forth until I gave the track my approval. That makes a lot of sense. And that also, okay, so that, that does mean like when multiple composers are listed that it's not like, it's not always necessarily that... Because I was always under the impression that it would be like, you know, one composer writes one song, one composer writes another song. Right. And that collaborating on one track would almost seem like an unnecessary amount of work. Right. But when he explains it in the fact that they were fixing parts of his songs or vice versa or creating, if there was a motif throughout the game, mm -hmm. that another composer might write using the same note melodies, but in their style to right. create kind of a motif throughout the end, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I'm going to be saying interesting a lot throughout this podcast. You are, because it is very interesting yeah. information. No, it's, it, it is cool, because I, I, I never really had proof from at least interviews that I've read with other composers that there were any real collaborations on individual tracks going on. So that's pretty cool. Right, yeah. All right, well, let's get into our next track and our next game. This is a classic Shatterhand for the NES, and this track is Area C, and it's by Ikumizutani and Koishi Yamanishi.
Welcome back. That blew your face off. That was Shatterhand on the NES. Came out in 1991, originally titled Tokyo Shire Soru Brain. How's my Japanese on that, Brian? Your Japanese was to die for. <laughs> Very excellent. <laughs> <laughs> that was Area C was the track, and that was by Ikumizutani and Koishi Yamanishi. And it's worth noting that uh, Wikipedia is wrong on this. Ikumizutani did the composition. Hiroyuki Iwatsuki is labeled as composer. He actually did the sound effects. Koishi Yamanishi did the other half of the composition. Co-composition. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This is one of my favorite NES soundtracks. Yes. I love this track because all of those like square notes, they're all elongated. Like the, the square channels never rest unless right. it's like just those like little staccato da 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 you know, but the rest of it, it's all flowing. It's like a constant wall of sound. Yeah. I think, you know, going back to one of his earlier answers is that all five of these channels on the NES in this song are all working together all at once. There aren't very many rests. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening to this this music while you're playing through the game, it's going to sound a lot more interrupted, I think, because a lot of those sound effects are going to get in the way of a lot of those, you know, held out square channel notes. Yeah. So it's definitely not going to feel the same listening to it as a song by itself versus actually playing it in the game. Right. Yeah, all these tracks playing them in the game, I mean, they don't necessarily match with what you're doing, so to speak. I think that the gameplay in Shatterhand doesn't necessarily match the music that you're that you're hearing. How Tim Fallen. I think with this type of game, they tried to stride more for a Japanese action sound that you know we've talked about a lot in our various different episodes. Yeah. One thing I really, really love is the drum breakdown right before it kind of rolls back into like a more familiar melody. That part that's like you have like this like um, escalating like uplifting melody. It's like it's almost like string esque. Yeah. It's a but in the up. background you've got these really killer drums that are like. It's really cool, and it just rolls back into that really tight staccato, like da 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 da. It's just really cool. So, and the track itself really sounds like something out of Shadow of the Ninja, actually. With oh those yeah. Initial like those really tight, like almost chuggy guitars. It's it's just great. Yeah, given that you were pretty much look, looking at the same two composers, so yeah. uh, you know, I'm sure that the influences were, you know, perhaps even a lot of these songs were holdovers from Shadow of the Ninja Possibly. that they just, you know, used in Shatterhand instead. Yeah. Shatterhand, you know, it's an American version, as we said earlier, of Tokyo Shire Soul Brain, and that was actually a, uh, it's kind of like a Sentai kind of show. Yeah, there were a lot of differences between the Japanese version and yeah. the American version. Even the main character sprite was yes. different. The main character sprite is different. There's actually a level and a track that has... They're not, unique to the Japanese version. Right. It is not anything that you would hear in the U.S. version. And it's it's worth playing the Famicom version just to hear that track because it is a phenomenal song as well. Agreed. Yeah. So I'm not going to get too much into the plot. It's nonsense. But Shatterhands, basically, you play as this guy named Steve Herman. He's this uh, police officer. Hey, Steve. Uh, <laughs> hey, Steve. From the Bronx. And uh, he... It, this takes place in the year 2030. Basically, there's this group of military, I don't know, like like anarchists called the Metal Command, 
and they're led by this guy named General Gus Grover, which is the goofiest name. Okay. Steve gets in a fight with Metal Command, and afterwards, uh, both of his arms are ripped off. And uh, he joins this group called Law and Order Regulatory Division, also known as Lord, to replace both of his arms with the cybernetic, like, metal arms. Kind of like Jack style from Mortal Kombat. Right. And uh, so now he takes on this code name called Shatterhand to take on the Metal Command. It's a very goofy, you know, typical NES plot that's just ridiculous. The game itself kind of plays a little bit like Batman meets like Ninja Gaiden, if you will, I guess. Bat Gaiden? Yeah, Bat Gaiden. So Steve runs around and, you know, busts. Shatters things with his hands. Yeah, with his fists. Yeah, so it's just a really tight game. It's a fantastic action game. So if you haven't played it and you own an NES, do yourself a favor and get it because it's worth every penny. All right, so let's move into the question which we asked Mizutani, which is what is your favorite console or handheld to compose video game music for? Well, if we're talking about this sound driver and software... I'd have to say that the NES or the Game Boy, simply because I like the restraint and the limitations of the hardware and how I could be creative to utilize those channels. But if we're talking about hardware, the most interesting or at least the most unique system to me was the PC Engine. Hmm. Oh yeah, um, for sure. I also liked the Master System. Taito had a game called Sagaya, which was known as Darius II in the West, and that was ported to the Sega Master System. And I only did the conversion and arrangements for that game, but it was pretty interesting to work on or to work with that sound driver and chip. But of course, I'm glad we've kind of advanced and I can work on more high-end machine stuff now. And I'm really focused on composing and not so much the engineering side. Hmm. That's funny. It's kind of backwards from Tim Fallon. Yeah. You know, Fallon was like always frustrated by the constraints placed, you know, on chiptunes. But Mizutani welcomed those constraints. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting because he tried to pull as much melody and harmonies as possible out of the limitations. So... It, it's kind of interesting. I think with Mizutani, he was more about the sound drivers and more interested in learning. More the technical aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, which yeah. I think is pretty common with the more Japanese composers, whereas the European composers were just like, let's just write some killer tunes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can also see why he might have enjoyed the PC Engine, because all of the waveforms on the PC Engine, all the channels were programmable, so you had a lot more control over what you wanted each of those channels to sound like. So while there were restraints, there was less restraints than if you were working on like the Game Boy or the NES. Right, right. (laughs) All right, let's move on to our next game. This is Chaos World, and it came out in 1991. It is a Famicom-exclusive RPG, and this track is known as Battle One, and it's, again, composed solely by Ikumizutani. was from an RPG exclusive to the Famicom called Chaos World 
and that was developed and published by Natsume. And the track was called Battle One, and that was composed by Iku Mizutani. I believe that Hiroyuki Iwatsuki did sound effects again for this one. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Forgive my lack of experience and knowledge, but I don't think any Iku Mizutani composed RPGs ever made it to the U.S., no. right? So this is kind of a unique soundtrack because yeah. I, I don't, I'm not even sure if it worked on any other RPGs besides this one. I would have to go back and look. I mean, he's done a lot of uh, stuff that stayed in Japan. Yeah. But most of his work did make it to yeah. the States. And well, he did work on some PC-88 and PC-98 stuff, and those were right. mainly RPGs. So. Yeah, most of his early work stayed in yeah. Japan. In, in, in any case, at least, at least in the show... You know, this is the only real RPG game that we're going to be hearing from. The rest are all mainly action game, maybe a puzzle game here and mm-hmm. there. But uh, so it was kind of cool to listen to this, and the melody sounded something very like almost Falcom to me, kind of heroic, yeah, very much out of ease. But then it still had that real Mizutani driving, steady beat behind it. So it was like almost like an you, you could hear this playing in an action game, like mm-hmm. at the beginning of an action game or near the end of an action game, where you know the the hero is like finally overcoming some kind of a danger. It could um, be a boss theme. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it it feels like, and and you know this is a battle theme from an RPG. So, mm-hmm. it, but it almost feels more like an action game title or an yeah. action game song rather than an RPG song. Yeah, I get what you're saying, and that does make sense based on the fact that the track itself is a battle track. Most of the other music, though, is pretty much straight out of most RPGs. It's oh, okay. all like more classical influenced, you know, a lot more laid back uh, when it needed to be. So it's not like the entire game sounds like this. <laughs> this is just one in particular track, which I really loved. So I, I picked it. As far as the game goes, we really didn't get far, guys. So got to. It apologize. felt very like um, Dragon like Quest, Fantasy, Dragon Warrior, Dragon Quest, exactly. very basic kind of an RPG. Yep. Uh, as far as I know about the plot, the king's daughter is taken ill just as the castle gets flooded by monsters. And so... She turned into a frog. Yeah, you, you, basically all we were able to do is get to the king. And so we got to him and he was like, hey, go do stuff, I think. That's we what think. he said. I think um, he was trying to tell you that you needed to go to the inn. It's in a very traditional kind, because we couldn't leave the town. Right. I think what he was telling you to do was that you needed to go to the armory and buy a weapon before you can leave the town, because that is like every single 1980s RPG. Right. You can't go anywhere until you've got a weapon on you. Yeah. So that's probably what was happening. There is a, an English translation. If you yes. go to romhacking.net, you can find a English translation for Chaos World, and I believe it's like 99% translated so yeah. you know if you didn't want to play through more of this game you can you can go do that i really love during this track if you pay attention to the other melody that's kind of like buried slightly underneath that lead like harmony it, it's it's just like it, it's it's very classical sounding yeah it's like dun 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 yep. dun, dun and that, that's it, where it felt like like yeah. a falcom title for yeah, me. yeah definitely and and when you Pair that, you're going to see a lot of this going forward with Mizutani's work. You're going to see a lot of like main melodies and then just like these really busy like undertones underneath that it, it's really hard to pay attention to in one track. Plus, you've got these really sharp, snappy drums that kind of just fill out the whole thing. So, as you go along and you listen to most of these songs that we're going to be playing for you, you're going to hear these this type of music. And it's, I'm telling you, 
now you're gonna want to go back and re-listen to the tracks and and kind of get a feel for them because there's just it's one of the reasons why I love his music so much is because there's so many different layers that it's hard to pay attention to them all at once which is great in video game music because you can go back and just like let it loop over and over and over again and and start paying attention to the things that you miss. Yeah, 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 for sure. So we asked Mizutani just flat out, how did you get into composing music? So from the time I was little up until my senior year of high school, I played the piano. My father was really into classical music, so it was always kind of flowing through the house. You know, I'd be walking around or studying and just I'd be hearing, you know, classical music just kind of all over, just around me growing up. The first time that I joined a music club or a band was my second year of high school, and I became extremely devoted to uh, the after-school practice and other band-related activities. And then this is kind of what led me into picking up a guitar. So when I got into college, I joined another band, and I kind of put my heart and soul into that. It made me really realize that I wanted to compose for a living. So my first interview took place at Konami. And really at this time, Konami wasn't, I guess, wasn't really a big deal yet. What's funny is that I didn't really have any formal education in music. None, actually. And the professional experience was also something I just I just didn't have. So I learned everything pretty much by trial and error. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. You see a lot of like self-taught people come from Japan. Akira Yamaoka. Yeah. You know, a lot of these people. Even even Tim Fallon only had one one year of professional music training. Mm. So you know, it's just these these people end up being like the best and the brightest. Seem to be the ones that have the most natural talent. I think. Yeah, that just blows me away. That that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, you think that they're these people who you know maybe listen to music growing up and everything, but. You wouldn't think that somebody who would compose something like this would be like, oh, no, I, yeah, I play the guitar, I do this, I do that. Because yeah. that's what he does now. He, like, plays guitars and bands and stuff. Yep, so. yep. Very cool. And so he did have a little bit more than, like, a live band, kind of maybe, a, like, like school band kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And he probably used that a bit on the Chaos World soundtrack. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I haven't heard anything but this particular track from that soundtrack, but I'm assuming, like, if you say that a lot of these tracks are more traditional style yeah, RPG tracks that a lot of his, you know, thinking back to the arrangements from the, the songs he used to perform in high school, you know, might have helped him to arrange this particular game soundtrack. Yeah. So the next game that we're going to get into is Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. This is the only Super Nintendo track that we picked for the podcast. The track is called Building, and it's by, again, Iku Mizutani, and he's also joined by Kinio Yamashita.
And we're back. That was Mighty Morphin Power Rangers on the SNES. Uh, it was the first Power Rangers game to come out. That was a track called Building, and that was from Iku Mizutani and Kinuyo Yamashita. Yes. Rockin' tune. So good. I can absolutely see this come to life in like a real band performing this. You know, you can hear the guitar, the bass, the drum kit. Everything can be paralleled into a real rock band kind of instrument. So, you know, I guess this is probably where a lot of his guitar playing influence and his, his you know, rock band playing influence comes in. I, I like the way, you know, similar to how Konami always did with the Ninja Turtle soundtracks, it always add that little go, go, Power Rangers melody, right. like, you know, into most of the songs from the soundtrack. Yeah, this soundtrack and game, other than the initial, like, startup song, which is the, you know, the Power Rangers theme song with the vocalized shouts of the, you know, go, go, Power Rangers, yeah. that's, that's in the beginning. But this soundtrack is the original, like this is an original creation. It's not like, what's the best way to put it? It's not- The original compositions based on the themes from the original um, Power Rangers theme song. However, the Genesis versions of the movie game actually is all the music from the TV show. Just redone with Genesis sound songs. So it's, it's really good, I'd recommend checking that version out. But yeah, these are original tracks that uh, Mizutani and Yamashita did, and they're just really rocking, just hard rock, awesome tracks that fit with the Power Rangers feel. It's not like the Sentai series, which I I feel like is a little bit more on an epic scale. This is just fun and and awesome, like dance metal. Geared towards American kids versus, you know, Japanese kids. Yeah. And I love those drums just like flowing so well with the melody. And the bass itself is just like going on its own path, which is really cool. It's always nice to hear bass lines that don't just, you know, kind of follow along with the main Right, it's not just blatant harmony with the leads. It, It does its own thing. Yeah, it's good stuff. So the game itself, it's based on the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers show, if you've never seen it. I don't know, maybe you're too old or too young or whatever, but it's basically a take on the Super Sentai series from Japan. It's Americanized, extremely Americanized. There were some other Power Rangers games that came out in Japan. There was one that was uh, specifically based on this Zero Ranger show. It was like a dinosaur-based, and that came out for the Famicom as the original title, but this is the first Power Rangers game that came out for... The powering. Right, based right. on the eighth series of the Super Sentai show in right, Japan. Right. So. so as far as Power Rangers go and the game itself, this game is a beat-em-up, just through and through. It's just your traditional action beat-em-up, very similar to like Final Fight and Streets of Rage, those types of games. You go through and you're playing as the teenagers at first, and then you get but it's to a two-dimensional certain... game, right? Yeah, it's two, totally two-dimensional. So it's not, not 2.5D like Final Fight. It's right. more like um, the you X-Men can't... game that Capcom did for the SNES. Uh, well, it's style. vertical. It's it's more like, yeah, like a X-Men Mutant, Mutant Apocalypse yeah, in the yeah. sense that you can't go up and down uh, on the Right, so it's a, it's a platforming combat game, kind yeah. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's just fantastic. It's a really good game. The Genesis version is actually just a fighting game. And uh, I think the biggest disappointment that I have with this game is that there's no Green Ranger. So it's based on like the early first season of the Power Rangers, right. where there was no Green Ranger, and then they kind of introduced him, and he became so popular that all the kids growing up were really big fans of the Green Ranger, and he was just 
the best. Everybody loves Tommy. Yeah, man. All right, so let's get into the next question. Yes, so the next question that we asked Mizutami was, are there any soundtracks you were supposed to work on, but that were given to someone else within a company? For example, Natsume, uh, Konami, Taito, etc. And what were they? So as I said earlier, I was a sound team lead at Natsume, so I got to call the shots on who did what soundtracks. But there were some times where the client would request a more renowned composer to do the work for their title, or someone that they knew through the industry or other contacts or past experience. It's not that I wasn't able to do the music though, it was just kind of their request, I think. And we see this a lot in the industry, you know, some past college schoolmates will will know somebody in the industry and ask them to to do the soundtrack so i was kind of put off on the side for some of those that kind of makes sense i mean you know you would want to have a specific sound for your game and if that composer was available then you would have them compose that sound Mm -hmm. you know because mizutani you know we we were listening to a lot of his music and he has a very specific sound so if you're creating a game that might not fit with that specific sound you might want to go with somebody else who has more of a classical bent or more of a handle on blues or whatever kind of influence you Mm -hmm. want yeah it's interesting i mean if you look at games like ninja warriors or ninja warriors again as it's called in in japan for the super nes or super famicom that game, originally, I thought Mizutani worked on that game, and maybe he just did the sound driver for it, because it sounds very similar to this Power Rangers game. Yeah. But it, all the tracks were supposedly composed by uh, Hiroyuki Iwatsuki. Iwatsuki. And so. I think they were closely together. I think yeah. they shared a lot of common influences. Mm-hmm. Like, like he said, Mizutani kind of learned as he went. So... Who knows? Iwatsuki might have taught him the things that he knew when he got to Natsume, you know, and that's why their sounds are very similar to each other. That's a possibility, yeah. I would say with Ninja Warriors, it's a little bit more dance, a little less metal. Yeah, yeah. But that fits with the Power Rangers, you know, motif. It's more metal, less dance. Exactly. Yeah. Unless you're doing some hip-hop keto, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Just stop. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on to our next game. It's Tetris Plus, and this is the Game Boy version of that game, and this is... Knossis stage, I guess I'm pronouncing it. I think that. it's Gnosis. Gnosis? Knossis? I don't know. It, it reminds me of Kanish. Like, I kind of want a Kanish now. <laughs> Alright, so it's done entirely by Iku Mizutani for the Game Boy version. Let's uh, give it a listen. Sweet. That was Tetris Plus, and that was another fantastic song from Mr. Iku Mizutani. And as far as the stage, it's from Knossis or Knossis? Knossis. So apparently there's a couple different composers that are listed here. Uh, One is called NIS, and then there's another one, Kazuo Sawa. 
However, the songs were arranged by Ikumizutani. When you look at the instruction manual for this game, it basically says all the composers that were involved and Mizutani is listed. And so based on, in, in my opinion, based on the, not only the sound of this song, the energy of the song, that driving bass line that you hear throughout it, you know, the complex melodies, I'm convinced that this is a Mizutani jam. Yeah, well, NIS and Kazuo Sao wrote the original arcade soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And then, so Mizutani was credited on the Game Boy soundtrack and both the Saturn and PlayStation releases. They were identical, obviously, because they were like Red Book audio. Right, right. But, you know, having heard the original version of this, it definitely has much more energy in this version than the original arcade right. version did. And I think, you know, Mizutani brought a lot to that. You know, like in our, in our Tim Fallon episode, we played that Bionic Commando track. Mm -hmm. And it was an arrangement, but he put his own spin on it. Right. So this is almost kind of the identical mm -hmm. thing, where you get kind of a Mizutani take on a Kazuo Sawa NIS track from the arcade version. Yeah, it's interesting that that kind of worked out the way it did, because I didn't pick this track with that intention. I was just like, this is a cool song, and it's credited to Mizutani. But really, when you think about it, we've talked a lot about that Tim Fallon episode, and they, these two episodes really kind of do go hand in hand. There's a lot of parallels, of yeah, course. it's um, interesting. Yeah, it's cool. You know, I like this track because at the beginning, there's almost kind of like that little call and response where you get the melody it's like da 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 and then the, the, the bass line or it's not even a bass line it's more like a secondary like dun dun da dun dun right it gave me kind of like a 80s like Frankie Goes to Hollywood aha kind mm -hmm. of an 80s feel but then it got much more kind of a traditional video game music style like in the second half of the jam I really love the beginning though just yeah. when when that bass line comes in and you've got that do 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 it's just like that awesome it's it's not quite galloping but it's like almost yeah, there yeah it's very close it's really close and the melody is going along with it and it just sounds really good the only thing that i will say that kind of takes away from it is that that bass that like the bass drum drum that sounds very and you'll you'll notice in some of the later tracks of the game boy his drums are kind of all over the place yeah. like sometimes they sound really crisp and snappy and fresh and then other times they sound a little bit more hollow. And so it's interesting because you would think that he's using the same drivers, but he must be changing it around somewhat. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, when you're listening to Game Boy music and you're listening to it emulated or even straight from the hardware, you know, when you're listening to it like this, it's coming out of speakers that are much better than the Game Boy internal right, speakers, even, even with headphones. So the noise channel, I think, is most affected by sound emulation mm -hmm. or by pumping your Game Boy through like a you know a, a high quality receiver or right. something like that. So I think if you were to listen to this through like a Game Boy speaker, if you were just on the go it playing Tetris okay. somewhere, yeah. it wouldn't be as intrusive. Right. So you know it's that's true. It's it's inter interesting to comment on that kind mm -hmm. of stuff because you never know what the well I guess you could know what the original sounds like if you go out and buy the game and sure. really, you know actually play it. But yeah, I think I think it does sound very noisy, almost like brush mm -hmm. uh, drumsticks. Yeah. You know, it's not not exactly like a hard thump. But you know that might also have to do with the fact that when you're moving Tetris blocks around, those are kind of do, 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 you know, the very right. staccato sound effects. So maybe right. he just wanted to differentiate that from, from the sound effects you'd hear in the game. Yeah, the snare itself sounds pretty crisp. It's just that, for whatever reason, that bass drum sounds a little off to yeah. me. It's not bad, it's just different from some of the other tracks. And, you know, like I said, you'll hear 
quite a lot of Game Boy tracks uh, that we've picked, so sure. it's all going to sound very different. As a puzzle game, I think this music fits very well. It's Agreed. got a very even cadence to it. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that it's kind of like almost two different songs at once, so it kind of you know, flops back and forth as you're playing, so you don't really get tired of one particular melody right. over and over again. Yeah, and there's tons of different tracks throughout yeah. the game. This particular song plays during puzzle mode, which is the newest addition to this Tetris Plus game. And the whole point of it is, it's it's very worldly themed for these levels. There's four different continents, if you will, or locations. Maya, Gnosis, Egypt, and Angkor Wat. Yep. Um, Gnosis is in Greece, just for... Right. History's sake. There is one more level, uh, Atlantis, which once you beat the four stages, you unlock Atlantis. Um, But the whole point of the puzzle mode is to get this archaeologist character. There's two little characters. There's this one little, like, Mario-esque, like, mustached archaeologist guy. And then there's, like, the, you know, cute anime girl that's, like, kind of next to him, like, you know, kind of coaching him. Right, like his assistant, right. And so the whole point of the game is to knock down the blocks as fast as possible so you can get the archaeologist down to the ground. Yeah, so. because there's spikes on the ceiling. Right. So if he climbs up, he, he's like always climbing up. Yeah. Like, he's like dumb like that. Yeah, yeah. If he finds a place to climb up, he will climb up, even if there's lower points on the level. So if his head touches the spikes, the game is over. Right. That's, that's kind of how it goes. So yeah. it's not your traditional... Tetris game in the sense that you're just trying to make as many lines as possible. Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to clear off the top as much as possible right. so that he doesn't get himself killed. Yeah, so it uh, does have a battery backup in the game, so it will give you the ability to like you know keep your scores and everything, which is really nice. I mean, that's kind of a nice perk to uh, Tetris. I gotta say, when it comes to puzzle games, the music makes or breaks it for me. If it's a you, big part of it, it's yeah. It's huge. If you have a puzzle game, which is, in most cases, puzzle games require a lot of thinking. So if you've got something to kind of keep in your head, sometimes it can it can make the experience a lot more fun yeah. for you. Whereas if you have really boring, kind of chill, laid back music, it may not go the the way that you want it to go, or you may you know see yourself falling asleep. Perfect uh, example of this is Tetris Attack. Great oh, soundtrack. Yeah. But playing so the game while I'm, oh, I will fall asleep. To but on the other hand, like um, Shanghai Triple Threat, mm-hmm. which I know you you yeah. know, you have it on the Saturn, I have it on the 3DO. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic soundtrack oh, to yeah. that. Very hummable, you know, so a game where you're just kind of lifting tiles off a board. Oh, yeah. But you got that music to keep you going. Definitely. So this this music in Tetris Plus is kind of an analogy to that, where right. it's, it's, it keeps you going. Yeah. So the game did have a sequel, but it was arcade exclusive. The original game didn't get very good reviews, unfortunately. A lot of people said that it just didn't live up to Tetris. Yeah, Yeah. which I didn't really get. I thought it was a pretty fun Tetris sequel sort of pseudo thing. So, Well, it's not. You're wrong. (laughs) All right, well, let's ask Mizutani his uh, next question. Right. So we asked Mr. Ikumizutani what his favorite musical influences were and did he have or does he have a favorite musical artist or bands favorite artists it's got to be well there's a few there's santana the dewey brothers larry carlton a japanese fusion band actually two from uh, the 70s and 80s one was cassiopeia and the other was t-square well, it looks like I found two bands to check out because I've never heard of Cassiopeia or The Square. So apparently they we looked them up. 
they are jazz fusion bands. It's pretty so, cool. I love me some fusions. So. Yeah, he's, he's a big fan of that genre. I mean, Larry Carlton was uh, the guitarist for Steely Dan, mm -hmm. so and he's a big jazz fusion guitarist right. as well. Doobie Brothers, very classic. A lot of harmonizations in the vocals. Yeah. You know, very just classic American rock. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I can definitely see those influences in yeah. his music, for sure. I, I don't know what it is, but I hear so much of Iron Maiden in his, yeah. and mainly due to the harmonizing of the melodies and the galloping yeah. bass. Well, I mean, those are his favorites. It yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that that's all he listens oh, to. Oh, sure. You know. um, I'm sure there's other influences, too, like Wishbone Ash. That's another one that used uh, the Thin Lizzy. You know, all those right, types right. of bands were really big back then for the uh, dual harmonizing guitars. Judas Priest is another one. So, what do you say we move on to the next track? Sounds good to me. All right, what's coming up next? Next up is Dragon Dance. This was otherwise known as Pocket color block in Japan, which was a kind of an interesting name considering the type of game it is. Yeah. But this is a track called Final Boss Part 2, and this soundtrack was composed by Iku Mizutani and Kinuyo Yamashita. That was Dragon Dance for the Game Boy Color. It was developed by Natsume and published by Crave Entertainment, or Bottom Up in Japan. The track was called Final Boss Part 2, and it was by Iku Mizutani and Kinyo Yamashita. Cool song. Yeah. For a, like a boss track, it's really energetic. Yes. I mean, this game is kind of like a breakout clone. Yeah. So it's not like you're really fighting a boss, I guess. You're just kind of bouncing your balls against a boss. Oh, yeah. 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 That's, that's illegal in most states. Actually. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> I like the the end is my favorite. Okay. Where the that, that groove comes in. Yeah. It's really cool. Right. It, it reminds me of like the intermission segments in like Trigun or Cowboy Bebop when it like goes to a commercial and then comes back from a commercial right. and you get those like little squealy guitar solos yeah. that are just like out of place. It's we'll really be right cool. back. Those sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. After these messages... We'll be right back. Yes. So, I would say my favorite part of this is most likely the bass line. I mean, the, the melodies themselves are great, as usual, for, for both of these two, but... That baseline, the do 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 Yeah, that's really cool, Just, too. like, really rockin' bass line. It's, it's good stuff. Yeah, I, I, I really had, a, had fun with this game. I really... I picked it up for obviously the soundtrack and found out the game is actually pretty fun. As you said, it's basically like a breakout Arkanoid or whatever. Yeah. Clone, you know? Except your paddle is a dragon. Yeah, which is weird. Which because... kind of acts like he's like from the game Snake. Like it right. kind of follows, like the tail kind of follows where the head goes. Right. So it can change its shape. It can like curl up into a ball or lay flat. So 
it really makes hitting the ball back kind of interesting because mm -hmm. you're, depending on how you're moving your dragon, it's always in a different shape. That's what she said. That's what she said, yeah. Especially because we were, I mean, we were playing it on Game Boy Player on a GameCube, but playing that on a tiny little Game Boy screen, I can imagine being even more difficult because... Yeah, I mean, it's a smaller I, screen. It depends. And I your mean, dragon is so small to begin with. That's what she said. You have a very small dragon. You have a the only thing I'll say about that is... I have more of an experience playing handhelds because I've been playing them since I was younger. Yeah. So I think I know that you aren't as big of a fan of handhelds, so maybe the size of the screen would intimidate you more. I but guess. I, I mean, I do I, have a lot of Game Boy experience, but... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of Game Boy It's experience. true. I'm <laughs> very dashing, and the Game Boys love me. Um, <laughs> No, what I'm saying is, if I was, I mean, I was sitting down here in your basement, you know, playing the game on a TV, and it was small for me. Like, I feel like, okay. from the distance I was sitting away from the TV would be a Game Boy screen. Like, I could see it. It's not like it was impossible to see. Okay. I'm just saying, it's a small sprite that you kind of need to have a lot of precision yeah. with. Yeah. So if you're in, um, you know, with like a Game Boy Color, if you're not in the right light, if, mm -hmm. if you know, you're moving around or on sure. the go. Yeah, they yeah. just make it a little more difficult to play. It'd Remember probably be easier lights? on the TV. Remember the warm lights? Yes, or yeah. the, like the blob lights. Yeah. All those oh. crazy, stupid things. Man, I, I, I'm telling you, I, can't, I couldn't go back to those days. No. Yeah. Back, back lit all the way. Oh, absolutely. So, the controls in the game are pretty tight. The music's great. Yeah. The graphics are okay. I mean, you know, it's a puzzle game, so you're not really worried about the graphics as much, I would say, in a, in a yeah, puzzle game. You're not you, expecting you that the, much from the Game Boy Color anyway. Yeah, there's these power-ups that fall too, uh, these little power-ups and they can like freeze the ball and like do different things with, with the ball, like... Affect how it moves as it's yeah. going through the air and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So it's got some neat power-ups, some neat ideas, it's mm -hmm. a good take with a, with a few kind of uh, interesting concepts behind the traditional breakout right. style game. This was a hard one to find. I mean, I found it pretty easily on eBay, but going through stores to try to I find it. I haven't seen it in the wild anywhere. I've never seen it. So I just picked up my copy on like Amazon for like nine bucks or five yeah. bucks or whatever. So it's definitely worth it for that price. Um, it's probably like a low print run, but not in high demand right. kind of deal. It's, so. it's the kind of game that's rare because it's rare, not... It's not going to be expensive unless, like, you know, some huge like, YouTubers, you know, like, ooh, play Dragon Dance. And until then, now, when everybody listening to PTR goes out and yeah, buys one. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so, we asked Mizutani if he had any upcoming projects in or outside of video game music. And if not, would he be interested in writing video game music in the future? Or has he retired from the business? So, let's find out. Brian... I do have some stuff planned outside of game music, and also I'd be happy to continue doing music for games in the future, but I don't have any specific plans right now. Okay, then. Being very mysterious. Yeah. Well, I know that one of the last games you worked on was King of Fighters, what was it, 13? 13, yep. Right, and uh, got a chance to take a listen, you know, in preparation for this episode, and there's some good tracks on there, so... I think that it'd be really cool if SNK brought him on, or maybe with this Wild Guns Reloaded game that's coming out, Hiru Yoki Iwatsuki, they brought him back to do the soundtrack, or at least it's pretty much been confirmed at this point. Yeah. Mizutani left 
Natsume, like, you know, years after all of his Game Boy, Game Boy Color stuff was done. And I believe he was, like, freelancing. I think he maybe did a couple games for the Game Boy Advance, but uh, for the most part, in the, you know, like, mid, mid to late 2000s, he kind of just, like, disappeared. He was yeah. doing other stuff. He's, he's not listed on the King of Fighters 14 soundtrack, right. so it's not like he's, like, continuously working for Playmore or, right. you know, anybody that that's putting out that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. try to keep an eye out for his name and see where it pops up next. Yeah. Especially the non-video game projects. I wonder... I mean, I know he plays in bands, so he's yeah. probably talking about that stuff. Maybe there's an album coming out, but uh, I just wish he was a little more specific, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that happens. Especially may, since he may have some stuff in the works that he can't talk about yet. Too, exactly. So. We'd have to sign an NDA. Yes. <laughs> What's next? Next up, oh, we're getting into the Power Rangers music. So, this first one up is from Power Rangers Time Force for the Game Boy Color. This is the future version of Fable City, and this soundtrack was written entirely by Iku Mizutani. Rangers Time Force for the Game Boy Color, and that track was Fabled City, the future version, and that was composed by Ikumizutani. Uh, the game came out in 2001, so pretty late in the Game Boy Color's life cycle. There were three different versions of this game that came out, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, and PlayStation 1. The Game Boy Advance version was basically a beat-em-up. Uh, the Game Boy Color version is more of a platforming game. Yeah. Different and, developers, uh, too, on each of the three, so they yes. were nothing alike. Right. Yeah, the Game Boy Color version was Natsume, and the Game Boy Advance version was Vicarious Visions, which, don't get me wrong, Vicarious Visions did some amazing Game Boy Advance games. Yeah. Really underrated, like, licensed platform games. Yep. And then uh, Climax Studios worked on the PlayStation right. version. Right. So. And that one's, like, more of a 3D, you know, action-style yeah. game. Yeah, yeah. The Game Boy Color game is pretty difficult. I enjoy it, but it's really tough. And it has these branching paths after you beat a level where you can go into the future of one level, or you can go into the past, or it, it, it all, it, it's different. I haven't figured out specifically how all of that changes, but what I do know is that there's a dial on the bottom right hand side of your screen, like a time clock almost, if you will. And if it gets to the end, I believe it's game over. Okay. Or you lose a life. Sounds kind of like Sonic CD, where you can go through different versions of the yeah. levels and past and the present very and future similar. and stuff. Very similar, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, but uh, you could play as any of the five rangers from this series, the Time Force, Red, Yellow, 
pink, green, or blue. I haven't seen the show. Like I said, my Power Rangers experience kind of ended with In Space. I thought that was the best one. And yeah. Then I, you know, just stopped watching it because I was like, whatever, it's Power Rangers. Yeah, I never watched anything beyond the original right. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers series. So. Right, right. This is all foreign ground to me. <laughs> well, um, it's a shame because they really, like, after In Space, this, I guess from what I understand about the Power Rangers series on TV, is it got, In Space was so good and kids and uh, teenagers or whatever loved it so much that the series did really well that season and it got picked back up because they weren't going to do any more Power Rangers like Lost okay. in, uh, in Space was going to be it. So In Space was like 1998, so yeah. I was a junior in college, so yeah, oh, yeah. No, I wouldn't be watching Power Rangers at that no. point. No, yeah, I was, in <laughs> uh, 98, I was a, depending on the time of the year, either a freshman or a sophomore in high school. Yeah. So. so. <laughs> Still, it's a little bit old for Power Rangers, yeah, yeah. but it's you, so I'll That's let true. it slide. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about the music? Oh, it's fantastic. Just a really, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss for words. This track really stood out for me. I just love that driving bass. Uh, as far as the melodies go, I love the almost Castlevania-esque Yeah, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Yeah, it's very, very Castlevania-sounding. Just the melodies bouncing back and forth. It's up and down and up. That's my bread and butter, as I've always said, so... You know, this soundtrack is good stuff. Um, the rest of the soundtrack is filled with a lot of different types of music. It's it's pretty full of variety. There's a lot of, like, jazz-style music, uh, blues. Not the, surprising. Yeah, rock. Yeah, Mizudani exactly. Stuff. Right. A lot of that stuff. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, there was never a uh, in-space game, which is a shame because it was a really good series. I haven't played the advanced version or the PlayStation version, but the Game Boy Color version, you crawl really silly. Like if you duck down and you're like crawling, it's that's right. You kind of like walk, like like how Spider-Man crouches, except walking at the same time. Yeah, it's yeah. like really bizarre. But you're like really fast, and then you're not on all fours. You're like crouching on your two hind legs. Like, right. Yeah, you really can weird. you can hit. I think it's either start or select, and you could choose from different weapons. So you could either do your regular like fisticuffs, or you could do like a I don't know time wand. <laughs> I don't really know what you would call it, like a battering beating stick. And then there's uh, like a gun sort of thing. So I'll tell you what this reminds me of. Chojin Sentai Jetman for the NES. Okay, yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah, and which makes sense. It may have been developed by Natsume and then published by Angel Heart. I can't remember. I okay. reviewed the game. If anything, it was probably an influence on this particular title. Or it had some same, the same development Absolutely. team or yeah. different members were the same. Graphically speaking, it's very similar. I mean, if you told me that this game came out on the Nintendo, I would believe you. Hmm. So it, it looks... If you're looking for like, a, like an old school... NES game that's another like platform game action game like Chojin Sentai Jetman definitely check this game out um, there's also a power up this is the last power up I want to talk about there's a power up that you can get that makes you go super fast because the whole thing with the time forces that I guess they could travel through the speed of light or whatever I, I don't really know too much about it but when you get this power up you run super super fast and it looks really silly interesting yeah cool well let's ask our next question yes so you've worked on games that saw multiple ports such as Tetris Plus what was your experience like when composing for a more modern version of the same game 
and then having to go do the handheld version. Well, this might not actually fit the answer to your question perfectly, but comparing the old with the new, I guess um, I would define chiptunes as PSG under that 8-bit umbrella of embedded hardware. My definition of the newer tech is really that the software just costs a ton more money. <laughs> but uh, really, as I was saying earlier, the old way of doing things was great because you had complete control over the sound chip and you could do what you wanted with your own programs or your sound driver. But nowadays, we don't do chip music at all. It's just not part of our job. And while I like the newer technology, the problem is that there's too many options. With no restraints or limitations, it requires significantly more time, even though it's made to, I guess, make music much easier, which is also uh, fun in kind of a different way. So I guess to answer your question, both the old and the new methods have their advantages and disadvantages, and I kind of like both. But not only that, I, I've also changed a lot over the years, which is definitely factoring into to my, my choice on that. It's funny because what we talked about with the Tim Fallon episode was that he, in interviews, was always wanting to get away from Chip, wanting to right. be able to expand his horizons, and felt very limited by what chips could do and, and, and synthesizers. And Mizutani seems to be kind of sad almost that he's not doing chip music anymore. Mm -hmm. He kind of remembers it very fondly, enjoyed the limitations, and like like he said, having the full control over it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, he, he enjoys having the freedom of the more modern music development, you know, the ability to do Redbook audio and streaming audio, etc., etc. I, I feel like a part of him really enjoyed his NES and, and, and Game Boy stuff, and you know, you've you've said previously on this episode that that's, that's your favorite stuff yeah, from him. Definitely. So, I mean, it's where I feel like he might have felt like he did his best work on those trips. And this isn't to take away from his more modernized stuff, which he hasn't done much of, but, you know, things like King of Fighters, it's good stuff, don't get me wrong. It just, to me, these tracks feel more passionate. Yeah. They feel like they come from a different place. So I, I kind of feel like the limitations in this aspect definitely help. And I don't know. I mean, I've heard some stuff that wasn't that it's not like every single song that he's ever written. I absolutely adore because that'd be silly. But I will say that I think a large majority of the music that he produces is all quality stuff. Mm -hmm. It's all really good, high energy, lots of fun to listen to. And when you're playing a game, that's super important because if if you have a bad soundtrack to a game to, at least in my opinion i won't play a game with a really terrible soundtrack yeah you're gonna need to be like twice as good to right. make up for a bad soundtrack right right so next we have another game boy color power rangers game this time power rangers lightspeed rescue and the track is boss theme and again it's a solo effort by iku mizutani let's take a listen
And we're back, that was Power Rangers Lightspeed Rescue, came out on the Game Boy Color in 2000. That was the boss theme from Iku Mizutani. And I hear a lot of Power Rangers theme in that track for sure. Yeah, I think he was a good fit for those style of games. So, I mean, he's done three of them. Yeah. As far as I know. So he really kind of studied and became familiar with the soundtrack that goes along with those games. And, you know, he did a lot of modifying of that, that music and still was able to fit it into, like, nearly every single song and every single one of those three soundtracks has some sort of little th- callback to mm-hmm. the Power Ranger themes. So right. it really keeps that feel going throughout the whole game. Yeah, it's just a very energetic, busy track. I mean, listening to the different layers, as I said earlier in the podcast you get kind of dizzy because there's just so much going on with the main melody, of course, is is the thing that, of course, catches my ear first. But then when I go back and listen to it, I hear the, like, under, like, underneath layers, like the lower layers of the track that are really solid, like, harmonized parts that fit really well in with it, even though the notes are completely different. Yeah. It's just, like, two songs playing at once, that somehow sync up perfectly. It's crazy. (laughs) It really is. Yeah, no, he knows what he's doing for sure. Yeah. So uh, as far as the game itself goes, again, I don't know much about Power Rangers Lightspeed Rescue. Actually, I believe we swapped these as far as chronology goes. I think this one came out first. Lightspeed Rescue came first. Okay. Because this game came out in 2000. Uh, Time Force came out in 2001. Yep. Again, a game that came with multiple different ports. There was an N64 version. Climax Studios did the PlayStation 1 version. Mass Media Inc. did the N64 version. Sume did the Game Boy Color version that you just heard. And then Red Sky Interactive did the Mac and Windows version of the game. So four different games, all completely different. Pretty nuts. Yeah. This game is... I like this game a little bit more, I would say, than the other one, than Time Force. It's more of an adventure-style game. Yeah. Kind of picking your way through, almost Metroid-style, these buildings that you're, like, rescuing people from. Right. Well, there's different levels of gameplay that you can do. So there's the straight-up, like, rescue missions, which makes sense, Lightspeed Rescue. Yeah. So you're going through as one of the five rangers, red, yellow, pink, blue, or green, and you basically are going through this, like, the level that we played... You're going through this burning building to, like, rescue these people, and there's different items that you need to get the people. So, like, there's medicine that you can get to give somebody from to stop coughing so they can escape. There's, um, like, metal doors that you have to drill through. Like, it's really crazy, and it's very well done, and it makes for great replayability because it's they don't leave you with enough time to beat it in one shot unless you've memor- mesmerized memorize it right (laughs) so it it can prove to be very difficult we went through it about two three four times and we We ran out of time every single time every time we ran out of time so then there's another section of the game which is like more of an action oriented like i don't want to say beat them up but like more like time force where you're going through a level and beating up bad guys Uh, okay and then the third is the megazord battles which you know you get in your giant mech each fight i think my favorite uh, my favorite part of the game was when you're in that that burning building and the guys that you're rescuing well they're supposed to be coughing right but looks like they're having a lot of fun oh yeah like they have sort of sort of a arson fetish or something right right very interesting looking <laughs> like you should be holding your hand up a little bit higher when you're yeah. coughing into your mouth yeah, yeah. you know but <laughs> oh those people crazy rescuers <laughs> the drums on this one also sound a bit more like dragon dance 
Yeah, have that, like, more of a rock kit kind of a yeah. sort of a jazz kit. Yeah, the snare in particular sounds really brash. Right. It's it's good. I mean, it sounds good. I don't have a problem with it. I just think that it's it's different than Time Force, which was known for its more like peppier, snappier drums. Yep. So. All right, so we got two questions to go through this time. Yes, so we do. Start off with our first. Our first question is: What game was the most fun to work on? either for composition or behind-the-scenes development? Nothing really in particular. I mean, I love music, but at the same time, it's a lot of work. You know, I working, you know, all day and all night, late nights for a lot of these soundtracks, it gets kind of tough. You know, this brings up a really interesting point because all my life I wanted to work in video games. I wanted to do something in the video game industry and that's the whole reason why I went to school because I was into writing and I had a teacher who was like, you know, you should, you know, pursue writing and I started thinking to myself like, what do I want to do? And I was like, I want to be like a writer for like Nintendo Power or whatever. Like that was my kid childhood or whatever dream. So the thing about it is, is that when I started reviewing games, not just for the channel that I do now, but all the articles that I've written and, and you know, stuff that I've written for different magazines and online websites and all different stuff, it, it does get a bit tiring, but at the same time you're doing something that you love. Yeah. So it's like, I can understand that because it's hard work you have to be dedicated to what you love. Right. And if you, you're you not, then it's going to feel more like... When it starts feeling more like work and less like fun, I would say, that, that may be time to reevaluate your situation. Exactly. But in Mizutani's situation, it sounds like he has the passion and, you know, he has that lifelong love of music, but he, he can still understand and appreciate that it, it's hard work. You know? Yeah, and I think that's kind of a Japanese point of view, too. It's like, mm. your job is your job. You do it. But I think the fact that he also has, like, his band on the side, like, he kind of splits music in two different ways. He's got his music that he needs to make for his profession. Right. And then he's got his music that he's making as a hobbyist kind of a deal. So, you know, and that's kind of like what I do, too. I'm IT. You know, I work with computers as a job, and I do lots of stuff to get my work done at, at, you know, where I am. But then I also love tinkering with doing the same kind of stuff at home. So I can kind of understand where he is coming from in that that respect. It's like, you're doing what you like, but at the same time, you're doing it because somebody told you to do it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Plus, I'm sure the deadlines were absolutely brutal on some of those games, especially those licensed games that he worked on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially and and working with multiple people too, you know, it's not always that that same vision. True. Um, so that's not always uh, an easy way to work either. Well, we also asked him. We said you seem to collaborate quite frequently with composers like Hiroyuki Iwatsuki. If not him, do you have a favorite composer you've worked with in the past? Really, the main reason why Iwatsuki and I work so frequently together is because we worked at the same company. It's kind of unavoidable. I guess. Either that or I was working with other employees or part-timers. Actually, there's a few people that I really enjoyed working with that um, are quite famous in the game industry, but since they're still employed by certain companies, I kind of have to leave their names off the list. So mysterious. I know. Mr. Johnny-san. Goodness. <laughs> well, I, you know, I can understand that though, because especially going back to the days of video game composers in the Japanese atmosphere of like that location, the development teams they were kind of kept hidden yeah. away from the outside world in the sense that they didn't want headhunters to come around to steal them and bring them to another development team so they had all these like 
you know, designers and developers and composers and artists. They went by aliases and handles and stuff like that. Right, right. So all those tags, you know, that they went by, it was all just a way to hide who they were. Yeah. And so it's interesting when you have an artist like Mizutani jumping ship from Konami to Natsume to freelancing, and you see that progression. I, I gotta wonder, like, you know, is there, like, some sort of, like, unspoken, like, you know, hey, listen... Don't tell anybody that I work for, you know, that I, let's say he works with like Koji Kondo, you know, we were joking about that earlier. Or let's say... That, like Yuzo Koshiro or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you know? Yuzo Koshiro, yeah. That's it's, good it's funny because all my, in my head, all these fun montages I had of Mizutani and Iwatsuki like hanging out and like in a gondola together and <laughs> eating lunch together. And yeah, yeah. Probably never happened. Well, you can't say that. Well, they're, they're probably just like chatting by the water cooler, like, "Hey, did you watch Stranger Things last night?" You know that, <laughs> that kind they, of deal. I don't think. They I mean, obviously that. the time wouldn't have been the same, but you know. <laughs> well, he, here's the thing, though. I mean, we've seen the Capcom female composers all get along. Yeah. You know what I mean? We've seen photos of them hanging out and whatnot. Right. And even if you go on some of the old composers' Facebook pages, you'll see them hanging out with other composers. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's more of a hey, you know, maybe this particular person was like, hey, listen, if you're ever interviewed, don't mention that, you know, we've worked together or whatever. possible. Yeah, I don't don't want to be associated with you. (laughs) But, you know, I think a lot of people tend to think when they see two composer names, like Jun Fukuda and, uh, you know, like like the Grasshopper Manufacturer composers, like they all, they're all working on these particular games together because they're buddies. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's just because they're co-workers. Right, right. You know, and you can have friendships that are born from We don't see it on that level. But we, yeah, yeah, we see it as like, uh, hey, everybody's hanging out and cool with each other. But in fact, it's just like, oh, you got a cubicle next to me and we're doing the same thing. Right. So our credits are in the same thing. But at the same time, I have co-workers that I... I'm friendly with. You know, yeah. I don't hang out with them outside of work. Sure. But I still get lunch with them and we still hang out. So, right. you know, I, I, I feel like maybe it's less of a friendship, but there's still a relationship there mm-hmm. in some in some respect. All too true. We're moving on to, sadly, our last track of the podcast. But one of the funnest games out there. Yes, we are going out with a bang. This game is Action Man Search for Base X on the Game Boy Color. The track is the Moon Base 1 boss theme, and again, composed solely by Iku Mizutani. our final track of the podcast Action Man Search for Basex was the name of the game came out for the Game Boy Color in 2001 and the track was Moon Base 1 Boss Theme and that was by Iku Mizutani, the man of the hour and Iron Maiden <laughs> right? <laughs> that track man, just awesome, squeedly, meadly yeah, this is a guitar. fantastic soundtrack this 
you know, it's probably not my favorite because this is like the most kind of metalish track on the album, but the, the rest of the soundtrack's a little bit slower, very dynamic, lots of different time changes and, and, and really cool stuff. This one, when it first started up, it was like really kind of lots of like those like rock arpeggios. And yeah. I was like, eh, but then once the melody started and I was like, whoa, okay, this is really, really nice mm -hmm. stuff. Um, I love those harmonies. Um, you can easily tell that these would be, you know, guitars as those those lead synths. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's just fantastic. You you know, I've I've just got a loss for words. I've listened to this soundtrack so many times that it just every track on it is phenomenal. It's a really yeah. solid soundtrack. A lot of the earlier stuff sounds definitely more in that like Doobie Brothers, like jazz, like more like bass rock sound to it uh also kind of has like almost like a james bond feel to it which makes sense because the action man series or what whatever you want to call it the franchise is basically a european version of gi joe essentially less, yeah yeah and so in the late 90s somebody decided to reboot it and so they came up with a new tv show and it was like i think it was maybe in 3d or something i can't remember i never watched it but there were a couple games that came out, one of which was for the PlayStation, but this game in particular, I, again, I was searching Ikumizutani soundtracks, found Action Man Search for Base X, put the soundtrack on and was just like, oh my goodness, yeah. blown away. Where have you been all my life? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so it's just really good music. Yeah, we've, we've talked about the game itself before, kind of a side-scrolling game. You get right. different outfits to do different, almost kind of like a Mega Man-ish kind of game. Yes, so yes. We don't need to talk about it too, too much. You remember which uh, which episode did we play that? I think game? it was a free pick. I'm was almost it? positive. Yeah, that because sounds familiar. I, I really, really, really wanted to play a track off of this that was like, like... 50 or 60. It was like burning a hole in my music pocket. Do you have one of those? Yeah. Oh, me too. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> So I was like, you know, I, I got to play a track. And I saved this track in particular because this is my favorite tra track off the soundtrack. But yeah, the soundtrack's just full of like a, a really great variety of, of chiptune rock. Definitely recommend it. You have to know which way to go in the level because the levels are huge and they're long. And the only complaint that I have about this game, like the only major, major complaint aside from some kind of sloppy controls, is... The tracks are really long for the most part, and they get really good, especially in the main levels. They get really good when you're like, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds in. But the parts of the level are so short that you won't get to those parts of the song unless you're <laughs> taking your time. Yeah. So it's like it, the music, unlike the Power Rangers games, the music doesn't continue when you move to the next room. So listening to the soundtrack by itself is probably the better way to hear the music than actually Agreed. playing the game. Yeah, that's the problem. In every video that I watched on YouTube of this game before, actually I was watching it before people found out about the soundtrack, I think. I'm watching people on YouTube play it and they're just skipping, like, they're just skipping everything. They're skipping all the little tiny short cutscenes, they're skipping all the, the, the continue music, which you're going to hear in a minute is phenomenal music and it's funny because you see these people online just skipping it completely yeah. skipping it and i'm like no you gotta listen to this track just some it's people so out there good. that don't dig video game music i know i know those people are evil i don't understand those people <laughs> literally i don't understand those people yes 
It's not for everybody, but the yeah. soundtrack is definitely worth listening to. Agreed. So you want to ask Mr. Mizutani our last question? Of I the guess so. All right. So we asked him if you could compose for any major video game franchise. What would it be and why? So really anything, I guess. There's not anything in particular that I have, you know, a strong desire to work on. What's that, Mr. Mizutani? You said Castlevania, right? I, I did hear that. Akamajo Dracula? Dynasty Warriors? Is that what you Is said? That what you <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little let down by the answer, but at the same time, like, you know, I, I get it. You know, probably number one, don't want to necessarily name names, you know, yeah. trying to be professional, but... I feel like if he was offered the right money to do the right soundtrack, sure. he, would, he would go for it. I just feel like his style would be absolutely perfect for Castlevania. Like... That would require Konami getting off their duffs and doing a Castlevania. Yeah, that's all. A proper Castlevania. Topic. Yeah. But I do feel like the Dynasty Warriors, the Musou series, would be a good fit for him. Because be that's awesome. a lot of guitar rock. Mm -hmm. A lot of that kind of Iron Maiden style, you know, squeedly Meadly heavy Power metal, metal stuff. Power metal, yeah. Yeah, so that would be really cool. I don't know, what else would he fit in? I guess any sort of real action game. Like, you know, he's done fighting games. He's done, he's done... Fighting games. So, yeah. you know, I'm a little bummed that he wasn't on King of Fighters 14. Soundtrack's phenomenal for that game, but yeah. a little disappointing. Maybe he's currently working on something big. We can only dream. We can only dream. So this was fun. I mean, it was really cool to interview my favorite composer. Like, that was just... Such an honor, and really, we can't thank Brian enough. So, Brian, thank you so much. Oh, no, I was honored that you guys asked me to, to help out, and I had a lot of fun. You know, like, I haven't had a chance to really speak with Mizutani, and so I, I learned a lot just kind of going through this on my own. And so it was a lot of fun, I'm, and I'm like I said, I'm honored that you guys asked me to, to give you a hand on it. It's cool. Uh, there is one final thing that he throws in here. Uh, at the end, he says, um, you know, I'm from Osaka, so there's probably a lot of Kansai Ben thrown into my responses, so make sure you find someone that understands my dialect to translate. And it just happens that that's the, the language, that's the dialect that I, I speak at home, so it, it worked out. <laughs> and where can we find you if we need to find you? Somewhere on the vast internet. Well, I'm sure you guys know we have a lot of the same listeners. Um, I do a video game music podcast myself. It's called Pixelated Audio. I'm actually going to go record a show in a few hours. Yeah, we release stuff every uh, 1st and 15th of the month. And uh, we have a lot of fun. It's, I think it's very complimentary to your guys' show where we kind of you know solo out like a specific game or maybe like a series of one or two and uh, really kind of deep dive on those. Also, um, Ed, my co-host for Impulse Project, you can check us out there, and that's a lot of fun. We have, uh, you know, we, we kind of put those shows together. Just It's just a very relaxing, kind of laid-back show where you get to listen to a lot of demo scene music, a lot of really cool stuff from the uh, 80s and 90s, and even stuff that's that's recent. I guess if you want to find me online, if if you're that bored, uh, you can follow me at uh, on twitter at doki doki panic all right so that's gonna do it for our last episode <laughs> wow. no no the bucket list is done one more i was thinking maybe we could do a little conversation about fallen versus mizutani okay so not necessarily like each of us trying to convince the other one that like you know to for that to be their favorite composer, because sure. obviously that's never going to happen. Right, right. But just in terms of 
So like Mizutani and, and Fallen, they're both similar in the sense that they use rock as their base. Right. Um, you know, they have some jazz influences and, and, and stuff like that. But it's a, it's a lot of the older 70s, 80s rock. But I feel like Mizutani's work is much more video game oriented. Mm-hmm. Where Fallen's work is much more, I'm going to do a regular old rock song that you'll hear on the radio. Right. And we'll shoehorn it onto a chip that mm-hmm. you're going to, you know, it's eventually going to be in a video game. But, yeah. you know, as we talked about on his show, the music doesn't always fit with the game itself. Whereas mm-hmm. Mizutani's, it is a much, much better fit. Yeah. I think that the fact that with Fallen, he wanted to just create music that was music. Whereas I think Mizutani was more in tune with the hardware and more in tune with trying to understand and adapt his compositions yeah. to various different drivers, sound fonts, whatever yeah. you want to call them. So I, I kind of feel like he was, I don't want to say he was the more experimental one, because some of the Fallen stuff that he was doing was just unbelievable. Was pure experimentation. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I would say they both are experimental in their own rights, but I think on a more technical level, I was probably more blown away with Fallen in the sense that some of the things that he was doing with the technology that was available on such early hardware was just unreal. Yeah. But at the same time with Mizutani, he was kind of like a jack of all trades. Right. He, also, Mizutani sought out video game companies to compose for. He right. applied to Konami. He had his course in life plotted. Mm-hmm. I feel like Fallen was kind of like... More of a free Just kind of went wherever life took him. Right. You know, his brother Mike happened to be working for a video game company and was like, hey, you're my brother. Why don't you compose some music? Because you know, like, composition and mm-hmm. stuff. And Tim mm-hmm. was like, okay. And it just, I felt like with Tim, it just kind of kept snowballing. Sure. And it was just like, it wasn't something that he really ever uh, planned on doing with his life, but mm-hmm. he just found himself extremely good at something and in demand. Mm-hmm. And so he was finally able to break away from it at a certain point and, and get beyond that. Whereas Mizutani was like, I'm going to be a video game composer. This is going to be what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they both wrote their own software. So, yeah. you know, they both wrote their own sound drivers, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is a good common point between them. And like I've said many, many times, the guys who know the programming behind the music, who have written their own sound drivers and their own software, are always the ones that are going to make the best music because they have written it for themselves. You know, I, I will say that it, it kind of bothers me that. Fallen has, I don't want to say is not in the public light, but he's not, he's not, he's, not, I, I feel like he's often ashamed of the, of the limitations that he had to deal with. And so he felt constricted behind that. He didn't adapt to it. It was more like, I don't want to work with this. And, and yeah, I feel like it was more like, you know, he hated those limitations. Right. So he wanted to work around them and right. he wanted to try to break those limitations mm-hmm. And sometimes that became the focus of the music, Mm -hmm. even though the music was absolutely fantastic, but it was more like, how can I break the norm? Mm -hmm. You know, because he's not a guy that really even like, you know, in in personal life, like even afterwards, he went out and did, you know, independent stuff, worked on his own, was his own boss. Right. He was not that kind of conformist personality. Mm -hmm. So he was always like, all right, here's some hardware. This is what they're telling me I can do with it. I'm going to show them I can do more than that. Right, And right. so, but with Mizutani, it feels like, these are my limitations. I'm going to do the best I can within these limitations mm-hmm. and still produce some music that stands above and beyond a lot of other composers out right, there. Right, right. And I think it was more of a, 
It's, it's interesting because in the Fallen episode, we talked a lot about family-oriented business. Hmm. And with Mizutani, I feel like it was more like a day job in the sense that he went there, yeah. he created, he helped on the projects, you know, working with some of these other developers and composers that we've talked about for so long. And to kind of see this point of view that we never really saw before, at least I've never seen before, it was kind of interesting to see kind of the inner structures of how a Japanese video game company differs than, you know, like Fallen and, you know, had his whole family working on video games. Yeah, so yeah. It's interesting. It's different. It's, it's definitely not bad or good or anything. It's not either of the two. I think it's just different experiences that kind of produce different results. Yeah. It's funny. There was somebody forget whether it was an email we got or if it was on the Facebook group, but somebody had mentioned in in reference to my comments or our comments about family-oriented European companies versus mm-hmm. the very professional Japanese companies, mentioned that Yuzo Koshiro's, you know, that's a family right. company in Japan. Ancient yeah. is his, like, founded by his mom, his sister was a graphic designer, yep. so they all worked as a family there. Right. I feel like that's almost kind of like an outlier, though, because you never hear about that stuff no. anywhere else. And I think that's so interesting and so widely known because it is kind of like something that doesn't normally happen in, mm-hmm. in Japanese businesses. Yeah, so. no, that's true. But yeah, you know, with the with the Fallen stuff, you got a lot of people talking fondly and very personal, like, he was my pal, but, you know, we worked together at the same time, whereas here's Mizutani, and he's like, we were co-workers, you know, we got our job done, at the end mm-hmm. of the day, everything was was professional. Yeah, there's also a different level of culture, too, in, in Japan, where I think people are more polite when referring to other people. Right, right. So Especially I, without their permission or their presence. Exactly, right. So I think that that may also be a level that we're not seeing as Americans. Yeah. So that also has a, a strong possibility about that. So. Sure, sure. Yeah, so this was a fun episode. Have a really good time. And again, we want to thank uh, Iku Mizutani for taking time to answer questions. And again, for Brian helping us out with translating the questions. Go listen to Pixelated Audio and Impulse Project. Speaking of things that we do, you can check this podcast out on iTunes and give us a rating, give us a comment, let us know how we're doing. We want to hear feedback from you guys directly. You are our audience, and we are your... We are your servants. Oh, okay. You know, we're entertaining them. I'm the roller We wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. I'm the roller skate girl from, from, like, Sonic... Serving burgers? Yeah, serving burgers. Yeah. For those who aren't familiar, Sonic is a fast food restaurant where you drive around and you pull up to this slot and they kind of greet you on roller skates. Slot. Slot? Just making sure you were saying slot. Slot. Yes. Yes. Don't don't degrade the waitresses. Oh no, I said what did I say? You said slot. Yeah. Yes. What? You didn't say slut. You said slut. No, I'm just yeah. making sure. Of course not. No. <laughs> just kidding. Jesus. I knew what you said. Oh, this guy. I was trying not to go there, but you I'm, made me go there. I'm, I'm so, like, in a different <laughs> element post this episode. I'm, like, thinking very fondly of... Floating of on a, cloud nine. Yeah, well, I'm also... I, and I know you and I talked about this a little bit. We wanted to do the best possible job that we could in bringing out the stories behind these composers. So... We'd love to know what you guys think. Leave us a comment on the Facebook group if you are a member or uh, if you're not. Join us on Twitter. Our handle is at PixelTunesRadio. Our Facebook group is www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash PixelTunesRadio. 
You can check us out on Instagram at Pixeltoons Radio as well. That is true. You can also check out Impulse Project, which is Ed and our good friend Brian's podcast, a demo scene podcast, where you can listen to cool tunes that uh, didn't necessarily make it in a video game, but they are songs that uh, use demo the hardware. Songs. Amateur yeah. composed from yeah. Amiga, C64, FM stuff. Lots of really good songs that are being composed now and anywhere back to the 1980s. So it's, it's a lot of cool stuff. Uh, so coming up is uh, our favorite month of the year, October. Oh, man. We have another triple threat of oh. episodes. I don't want to say what they are. We're going to... I mean, obviously, we do our annual spooky tunes. So that's... Spooky. That's that's, that's a little... That's that. that was like a, like a wedded... That that I wedded your taste buds. Yes, everybody's ears just perked up. Yes, like oh, does that count? Does that one yeah, count? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we maybe have some maybe some goodies based on some video games of the spookier variety. We aren't going to spoil anything, but we have a special guest in one episode. Yes, fingers crossed. And then we are also doing, I think, an episode which will be really interesting, a fun one, kind of yeah. maybe a shorter one, but yeah. uh, it'll be a good. It'll be a goodie. Yeah, we're both interested in yes. doing this one from, yes. uh, from a musical and technical standpoint. This is true. I think that's it. Yeah, let's get the heck out of here. Yeah, man. Thanks for joining us on Pixel Tunes Radio. We'll see you in two weeks. Ciao. <laughs>